You're listening to Past and Present, the Colonial Williamsburg podcast. Hi, welcome to the podcast. I'm Harmony Hunter. Williamsburg in the 1700s was an intersection where three cultures met. English colonists, Africans, and Native Americans found themselves living in close proximity. It wasn't always an easy coexistence. Historic interpreter Hope Smith is our guest today to share the story of Elizabeth, an African-American woman who came to live among the Shawnee. Hope, thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me, Harmony. What an interesting moment in history. We have an African-American woman of the colonial period who is adopted into the Shawnee tribe. What's her story? Well, we know that this woman um, was a runaway some, at some point um, in the 1760s. And she ran away, and the thought is that she followed the Kanawha River in the west until she came upon the Shawnee. And upon her arrival and introduction to the tribe, um, they adopted her into the tribe, and she lived amongst them for uh, approximately 10 years or so. And then a circumstance led to her being returned to her mistress. What would her life have been like, the one that she was fleeing, where she was a slave? The one that she was fleeing, if she was um, on the Western territories, um, it probably would have been one of isolation. We don't know a lot about her master, her mistress, the people that owned her. But when you look more towards the West, you're seeing people owning less slaves. You're not going to be close to a, a larger city like Williamsburg, which, which we're accustomed to, which lends itself to, to community amongst the enslaved, with the city being over um, half black. Um, the labor could have included everything from working in the field um, she might have been responsible for cooking, laundry, keeping up the house. She probably did all of those um, sorts of things. And just not the field labor would have been hard labor, but just getting food to the table would have been hard labor. Um, getting clean clothes would have been hard labor. Um, so it probably would have been a life of isolation, a life of hard labor. And we're at a point in time with Elizabeth's story that is, before the revolution and there is a lot of activity happening between the colonial presence and the Native American presence and some early efforts at diplomacy, treaty, warfare. What's the climate like then that brings the Shawnees and Elizabeth together? Um, when Elizabeth runs it would be a little bit closer to the end of the uh, French and Indian War. So treaties um, have, have been established, and I guess it's a point of actually seeing how these words on paper translate to, to being lived out. But as Elizabeth remains with the Shawnee and eventually is returned to her, her master and her mistress, um, it has intensified. It's after um, Lord Dunmore's war in the West in the Ohio Territory in 1774. So she's seen relations go from tenuous at best to being very volatile. What an extraordinary story, though. She's adopted into the Shawnee tribe. Yes, she is. What do we know about what happened to her as she became part of that tribe? Well, we know that um, the Shawnee, as with a lot of Native American groups, um, would adopt whites, um, blacks, sometimes uh, Native Americans from other groups into their tribe. And once you're adopted into the group, you are considered fully a part of that group. Um, with Elizabeth's initiation and looking at what was typical of the Shawnee at the time, she essentially runs through a gauntlet of women and children where she is ceremoniously struck with switches. So it's not anything that would have physically harmed her or scarred her. 
Um, after that, the women would then take her, paint her, and then remove the paint from her body, and then she would be considered Shawnee. And at that point in time, it would have been as if she was, was born a Shawnee. And while living with the Shawnee, she would see not only a type of um, equality that she wouldn't have known as an enslaved woman, but something that even her mistress um, would not have known as a free white woman, where she was, uh, would be, be a part of of counsel and sitting on groups that made decisions um, about the tribe, um, about things that they would do, about things that would affect the community. Because in the Shawnee culture, females held a much higher status um, than women did in the European culture. Definitely. There was um, an equal status. There were still definitely still gender roles, um, but women were valued for their opinions when it did come to things like uh, politics or warfare, those sorts of things. She also took a husband. She did. She did. She marries a Shawnee man, and then she has two children um, with this man. So this is, this is privilege that she could never have hoped to enjoy if she had stayed in her old life, that she gets to have her children with her and live as part of a family unit. Exactly. She would have a legal marriage, and these children would be considered hers. We know that enslaved people um, are marrying, um, jumping the broom is probably one of the most common and other types of ceremonies, but in the eyes of the law, they would be considered property and owners did not have to um, consider those attachments when um, they sold people or when they transferred people or uh, when they, uh, I guess, wrote, wrote wills or wanted to, to give certain people away. And also, um, one of the very early slave laws established that the status of the child is that of the mother. So as she's having children, she's also increasing the property of her owner. So it would be more stability um, with this Shawnee marriage and with her Shawnee family. Because we know that in colonial Virginia families, husbands and wives are often separated. Children are sold away from their parents and their siblings. This sounds like she's found the best possible existence um, that, that, that people could hope for in the, in the colonial period. Why did she have to go back? Well, at the end of um, Lord Dunmore's war, um, the Shawnee um, were defeated and they're trying to settle the, the terms of, um, of the war, uh, of peace. And a part of the negotiation has uh, basically whites that had lost their enslaved individuals to the Shawnee demanding the return of them. Um, there also, interestingly enough, were, were whites who had been adopted into the tribe, too, um, who weren't, you know, obviously enslaved, but their families wanted them returned. But um, with the slaves, there's a back and forth where the Shawnee say, we've told these people that they have to leave, but they can't do anything to enforce. And eventually, um, it is decided that Elizabeth will return, her children will remain, and other enslaved individuals will be able to remain behind. So it's thought that if she returns, that would satisfy the demands for the slaves being returned. Um, the comment also, as you're looking at the, the, the negotiation, is that, well, she's young enough, she can have more children, because the owner demanded those two children that Elizabeth had with her husband back. Um, the Shawnee, um, the corn, Cornstalk and other uh, leaders who are negotiating say, no, they've been born. Shawnee, they have never known slavery. They've only known freedom. So we, we can't send them back. They were, they, you know, their father is Shawnee, 
And then you look at the language and it says, well, the woman will return and she's young enough. Well, she will have two children and probably more. So it was a, a sacrifice to give her children, hopefully, uh, a life where they wouldn't be threatened with being returned to slavery, a life that she had enjoyed for about 10 years. Elizabeth is an enslaved African. She's a woman and she's also a runaway, so she's a fugitive. She might seem like a very powerless character or a very powerless individual, mm -hmm. but we know from her story that she used what resources she had, what agency she had to really sacrifice herself and do a lot of good for other people. I think there's always something that you can do despite what, what the law says, despite what society says, there is something you can do. And she showed bravery on so many fronts. I mean, a lot of times when we think about runaways, we automatically think about men. But a lot of women are running away, and she would have been probably a, a pretty young woman in her, in her teens, maybe late teens, early 20s, so to take that step. And then when she encounters the Shawnee, she's probably heard things about Indians, especially living a little bit to the west, she might have heard the attitudes of her master and mistress. But to 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 enter into relationship, to to want to be adopted into the tribe, and to 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 make the ultimate sacrifice eventually um, at the end, um, it was a choice to return to enslavement. But it was a choice for her children, so that hopefully they would enjoy a type of freedom that most women would not have enjoyed in the society had they returned, um, white or black, free or enslaved. So she shows this, this, this power and this, this agency um, all throughout and this, this boldness and bravery and the choices that she makes. Is that your favorite thing about Elizabeth as you study her? It is. It is. You think about these choices and it's hard to say what you would or wouldn't do if you were to, to be in that position over 200 years ago. But it's, it's that, that, that bravery and that boldness. And usually it is that individual bravery and boldness that can change the course of history, whether it's personal history for one woman or one family or a larger history. It's individuals making those bold and brave choices. Hope, thank you so much for being our guest today and sharing Elizabeth's story. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. To support the podcast and Colonial Williamsburg programs, visit history.org donate. We love hearing from you. Visit history.org podcasts and click comment at the top of the page to drop us a line.